Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hot Shots. So today I'm here with uh, David Kaufman, the singer of Dirty Rick. Uh, Dirty Rick is a Hamilton-based band. So uh, we're here today to talk about um, mental illness and art and the link between the two of them. So um, you can find David at Howlin' Frog on Instagram. You can also find his band at Dirty Rick Music on Instagram. Uh, You can find David on Facebook. Uh, You can go find more stuff about the band at DirtyRick.com. Stream them on all streaming services, Spotify, Apple, you know, everything like that. And they've also just recently released a lyric video for their single 1968. So check that out as well. And uh, hey, David, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Um, So do you want to give a little bit of a description about like who you are and uh, what you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is David Kaufman. As you said, I am the singer of Dirty Rick and uh, I was living in Hamilton up until very recently and I'm looking to make my way back. But, uh, you know, I'm currently living in Etobicoke with uh, with the band. So it's been a good place to, you know, to stay isolated and uh, and lay low during this whole COVID thing. Um, I am also a student of osteopathy. So I kind of have a pretty interesting dual life uh, going on you know, doing the, uh, the healing thing and then also the music thing. And truly both of those are quite related. And, uh, and the third pillar of that healing kind of triangle for me is mental health advocacy. Uh, so that is, I guess what we will be talking about mostly today, but, uh, as I'm sure you'll understand it all, it all relates and it's all part of the grander story. Hmm. Oh, definitely. They're all, they're all connected in a million different ways. So uh, you're also, you know, the singer and songwriter of um, Dirty Rick. Um, do you want to give a little bit of description about what your sound is? Yeah, sure. So so first of all, we, uh, we write the music together uh, and we write uh, in kind of a, it's, it's fun, almost like an old school. Like we actually write mostly in the same room, like for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, somebody will come up to the band with an idea and a scrap or we'll send it to the group chat. But really we find that, uh, we can't really do much in the way of, uh, of completing or even getting close to completing a track without being in the same room, which has posed obviously quite some difficulties for, uh, for during this time as Alex is not, uh, not living in the house with us, our guitarist, but, uh, our sound is, I like to describe it as dancey rock and roll. Uh, we take after bands like Arctic Monkeys, Queens of the Stone Age, uh, Black Keys, so bluesy, more current or, you know, 2000s bands, I guess it's kind of current. Uh, but then also looking at bands like ACDC, uh, and other like eighties kind of hard rock bands. Um, but then adding some of that dancey groovy feel. And really for me, uh, music is, as my dad would say, uh, it's got to move you one way or the other. So it's either got to move you, move your feet or move you emotionally. And, uh, I take mm-hmm. that to heart. So you were recently very public on your social media platforms about being diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and your mental health journey and the steps leading up to your diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I was very public on my Instagram and my Facebook and, uh, part of what, uh, 
led me to do that was Bell Let's Talk Day, which is actually at the time of this recording next week. So I will certainly be uh, doing a similar kind of thing, or at least a, uh, a continuation of the story as much has evolved since then. Um, so I've, you know, borderline personality disorder, as they say, um, is something that happens to you, uh, over the course of traumatic events or just, uh, or very many like kind of micro traumas as, uh, as they'll kind of talk about in the books and whatnot. Uh, and as I'm learning about now, but I was diagnosed about a year ago. But really, my journey started much, much before that. Uh, when I was 12, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disease, and it's auto, an autoimmune condition. Uh, so there are a lot of other uh, autoimmune conditions uh, that affect different parts of the body, and they're just named differently for which parts they affect. Uh, but it's essentially your body turning against itself and attacking itself. So I was diagnosed with this when I was 12, and I spent a year... Uh, in and out of hospitals, in and out of clinics, in and out of treatments. Uh, they couldn't really figure out, they knew what was wrong with me, but they couldn't figure out how to, uh, how to, you know, manage the symptoms other than a pretty strong steroid called prednisone, which is, if any of you know what it is, you probably know it's awful. Uh, it made me lose, sorry, it made me gain a lot of weight. So I went from about 90 pounds of normal weight at the time to about 70 pounds when I was at my worst and lowest. And then over like the course of an, a month or so, and every time that I would go back on the prednisone, I'd go back up to like 120, 130 mm -hmm. even at times. And it would show in my face, it would show in my body. Um, and as you know, a 12 year old in grade seven at the time going in through grade eight, at, like later on in the year, um, you know, that was a really tough experience, uh, for someone who already didn't really have that much confidence in themselves, uh, to, you know, be so frequently changing. I looked like a ghost at times. I looked like a skeleton at times. And then other times I'd blow up like a balloon. So that, that definitely, you know, eventually I got on the right meds, uh, and I'm still on those meds now. That's, that was January of 2008 that I was put on Remicade. Uh, so I just had my kind of Remicade birthday. It's 13 years of that. So now it's been half my life. As I went for my last treatment or my most recent, not last, mm -hmm. but my most recent treatment, uh, last week. So, um, anyways, so that was definitely a big part of the start of my mental health journey as I, for, you know, I lost my innocence at a pretty young age. And I also, uh, you know, I went through a pretty significant traumatic event. Uh, there were other traumas going on at the time. Well, other just you know, facts of life, but for a 12 year old already dealing with, uh, you know, a lot, my cousin died and my grandmother died, uh, both of different illnesses, not of accidents of illnesses, which was significant because there is me going through an illness as well. I thought I was dying, uh, especially when they really just couldn't figure out what to do with me. Uh, and I was given another chance, uh, through the grace of, you know, some great doctors and nurses and, you know, people really treated me well. And that was what started me wanting to uh, be a healthcare professional of my own. But uh, as I went through high school, uh, you know, I got into grade nine, I was still five feet and really small because I lost that year and a half of growth. Uh, and, you know, so I got there and I was small and scrawny with the long hair and I liked purple and I was already kind of androgynous looking and, you know, got made fun of for that and got bullied pretty much all the way up, uh, from elementary school to through university, if I'm being 
frank, but, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to deal with any of that at the time. And so that definitely left a scar as well. Um, I went to McMaster, uh, after that and, you know, had a great first year and a half or so. Uh, and then my parents got split up, uh, right before my second year exams. So that, uh, that was really difficult to deal with. I didn't really know how to manage all the stress of, you know, a family change like that combined with the hardest exam season I've ever had. And to this day, the hardest exam season I ever dealt with. So, uh, it was really divinely bad timing. Um, but nonetheless, that start around then was when I started using heavily. Uh, I was uh, self-medicating with pot mostly, but I experimented with other things, drinking as well, even though it was bad on my stomach. Uh, I didn't really care. Uh, I just kind of wanted to numb it all out, not really deal with it. Uh, my long-term girlfriend was overseas at the time. So I didn't even have that support that I had grown to kind of count on by then we had already been together for two years. So, you know, I was used to having her around, uh, and even though we were doing long distances, I was at Mac and she was back home in Richmond Hill. Uh, it was all just very difficult to deal with. And then over the next, the course of the next three, four years, I uh, just started going further and further down the hole. Uh, and it was a hole that had already started digging when I was younger, but uh, I definitely accelerated the, the digging. Um, and then New Year's 2016 on to 2017, um, or around that time, I should say, was when it got, got really bad for me. Uh, I was living in a, I had just graduated McMaster, so I was not living with my friends anymore. I was living on the East End in Hamilton, uh, starting my new school, but, and I was really excited for the new school and, you know, motivated to, you know, for that change. But, uh, I wasn't ready for it evidently. And, uh, I didn't know anybody that I was living with. So it was tough to kind of pull myself out of the, uh, out of that further digging of the hole, uh, because it's, uh, you know, sometimes it takes somebody that really knows you to kind of help point out some things that are going on. But, uh, I worked through it and I ended up on new year's 2016 onto 2017 experimenting with LSD for the first time, um, which was really interesting because, and I mean, you know, uh, I tried to, you know, I'd been reading about it for years and I was, went into it with a pretty, uh, large risk, you know, respect for it and also caution for it. But I, that night I decided three pretty crucial things about myself. Number one, I wanted to read more and overall just know more about the world around me. And so that was when I started getting into philosophy, uh, and pleasure reading again, because that was something I really, really liked doing when I was younger. Uh, The second thing is I wanted to be a musician because I wasn't a singer before then. I was at best a karaoke singer, but uh, I was not a musician. Uh, I was a very big music fan. And the third thing was that I think there was something wrong in my head and that I wanted to, you know, look at, you know, look for the answers. And, uh, if any of you have done psychedelics out there, you'll know that these kind of things manifest in really funny ways, uh, especially for those of us who are uh, who have uh, not so neurotypical brains. And we, uh, you know, I kind of like all of these things started playing out uh, in front of me, and I understood that my brain didn't work the same way as uh, as my girlfriends, who the two of us were experimenting together. Uh, we, you know. We're just not the same. Uh, 
And I took that to heart. And about a week later, I broke my foot. So that put me into a pretty, in Canadian winters, terrible timing, but I um, broke my foot and I ended up like basically, you know, not leaving my house for about a month other than to go to the karaoke bar down this, down, you know, down Maine at, uh, at Emerson there at Emerson pub. And so I, I basically took up residence there and I would show up in my boot on a stool and just sing like grungy, heavy stuff as heavy as I could go. And I probably wasn't doing very well of myself, but nonetheless, it was a yeah. good, uh, it was a good place to kind of just practice and, uh, be plugged in and sing as loud as I could. And I wouldn't bother my housemates or anybody else. And, uh, and the other thing I did is I went down to Ottawa to visit uh, my girlfriend who was living there at the time uh, for school. And when I was there, and this was now February of 2017, I, uh, I read an article by, uh, by Corey Hirsch, who's a sports, so he was a goalie for the, uh, for the New York Rangers in the 90s. And he wrote an article about his experiences with mental health. He had OCD. And uh, he talked about like what that was for him as a 20 something year old in the nineties with, you know, he had just won a Stanley cup and he had just, you know, made an Olympic team and he, it was only, he was so young. He had his whole career ahead of him and all he wanted to do was take his own life and numb it all out uh, because of how intense the emotions and the dreams and the intrusive thoughts had become for him. And, uh, that made it really real reading that on the players tribune uh combined with you know a few other things that i had read uh yeah it really just got to me and i broke down on the floor and i sobbed and i realized that uh you know that thing that i had kind of thought about a month and a half earlier like that was real and it was happening to me and uh it wasn't the exact it didn't feel the exact same as what he was going through but uh, i knew that you know it was it was intense and it needed some more, uh, more attention. And another person who, uh, who wrote some great articles and, uh, I still listen to him on the radio almost every day is Michael Landsberg, another sports figure. And he, uh, is famously one of the, the biggest mental health advocates, at least in Canada for sure. But, uh, he, after, you know, he does his morning radio show, uh, in a normal life, he would be a normal time that is pre-COVID. He would be going to some other event to speak, uh, a charity event to speak. I saw him speak once when I was a kid uh, at my cousin's memorial fundraiser event. They got him to speak uh, and I took a picture with him. I didn't think much of it at the time. But uh, if you fast forward a few years to last January, he was doing a talk at McMaster and me as an alumni of McMaster, I had to find my way in there. Uh, so I did. And, uh, I sat in the crowd and I was around Bell Let's Talk. It was like right like a year ago today, basically, or this week. And, um, and, you know, and, and watching him speak in person and getting to interact with him was, uh, was really huge. And in that time between the time I broke down on the floor crying and the time I went to see Michael Landsberg about two weeks later was when I was diagnosed. And in between that, I was subject to, uh, what many people also uh, that go through mental illness will realize is that the system uh, is very flawed. And I, even though I found sources of therapy and I found um, 
great solace in a lot of things. You know, I, I, that was the band formed in April, 2017. So, you know, like two months after I'm sitting there sobbing on the ground, uh, I, we ran the second iteration of uh, a charity show that I ran at McMaster and I got my friends from high school to, uh, to headline and play as well. And, and, or actually, I guess we were the, we were the last band as the, uh, as my friends and I from McMaster put together like a little cover act. And after that night, uh, the guys approached me and basically, uh, invited me to join the band. And so that was great. And I went traveling and I did all these crazy cool things for myself. And I took time off of school and I, uh, you know, I tried to solve all of this using real world methods, uh, and tried to get around the fact that the system didn't really care about me. I yeah. went cause I'm, I was too functional for the system as much mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, as much as I was struggling and I was suffering when I showed up in these doctor's offices, they didn't really believe me. Yeah. Uh, I went to see a psychiatrist who told me to lay off the pot. I went to see a psychotherapist who did a lot of great work with me, uh, but couldn't give me the answers that I wanted. I saw a social worker that I ended up ghosting. I saw, I also ghosted the psychotherapist for that matter too. Um, you know, that was, and I mean, if that isn't evidence of a problem going on, uh, I don't really know what is, but mm-hmm. part of the problem of the system is it requires you to advocate for yourself. Um, and it wasn't until very recently uh, that I was able to do that. And in, it would have been 2019, September 2019, uh, I walked into the doors at Lost for the first time and Lost as an organization in Hamilton, living outside of suffering and trauma. Uh, and I met Rebecca Tobe there and she really you know, kind of helped me turn this whole thing around slowly, but steadily. And her partner, Kyle, the two of them are still very significant influences in my life to this day. And I'll get more into that, I guess, a little later, but they run, uh, just, you know, a lot of like creative programming and peer support that still has been running, uh, throughout COVID. So, and I'm still checking in with, uh, the peer support group once a week if I can. And, uh, you know, so I started going in there and I started talking about my emotions and my feelings with other people who also were experiencing these things. And it made me not feel so alone anymore. It made me feel a little more confident in myself and understanding in myself. Um, and she, you know, kind of opened, uh, opened up like this, uh, you know, this view to me that, uh, that it's all through self love and self, uh, medication is the wrong word, but you know, self therapy, it has to come from within you. Change has to come from within you. That was, mm-hmm. you know, a thing that kind of, uh, and she wasn't pushing it on me. She was giving me an environment to, uh, to change. And she also recommended that I go to the St. Joe's clinic in on the mountain right near Mohawk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that and I, um, and by, for over the course of a month, I ended up seeing, uh, going to some outpatient groups there, but, uh, you know, I wasn't really getting much out of it. It wasn't, wasn't really much anything different than lost. I was kind of just learning different skills and it was fine, but, uh, I needed something a little more and they were, they agreed to give me an assessment and, uh, through that assessment, uh, they, diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder three day, three years, almost to the exact same day that I read that article. 
um, one, one day off. It was uh, Valentine's mm-hmm. Day of last year, um, which kind of killed the mood of the day a little bit there. But uh, a bit. yeah, I went, uh, you know, I, I, I went home and I bought a pack of cigars, like those little cigars, uh, the cigarellos make that. Um, cause I was right. pretty addicted to nicotine at the time and I couldn't deal with that. And I, you know, got loaded and decided, mm-hmm. okay, like, what am I going to do with myself now? Um, uh, and I thought I was going to hide it. I thought I was going to just kind of deal with it. Um, but my, like my instincts and my body and everything just screamed at me. No, that is not the way. And I told, I told my girlfriend, I told my mom, and that was basically where I left it for a little while there. Mm-hmm. But I ended up finding this interesting connection in that a lot of the people I had come to meet along the way, including friends from outside of just these lost circles and other mental health circles, mm-hmm. um, there were quite a few of them that had the same thing going on. Yeah. And I took a lot of solace in that. I took a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it basically awakened in me this, like, now that I know the answer and, you know, it took, it took like a little while to kind of, uh, be comfortable in it a few weeks. And then I realized, okay, like I, I, this doesn't really change anything for me. If anything, it gives me some answers and then COVID hit. And, uh, (laughs) so, so just as things were starting to look up for me and I was, uh, you know, we were, we played a show at the Horseshoe Tavern. Uh, it was our third time playing there. That was March 5th. And then that week I had, uh, you know, I was going to see friends and partying and having a like great time, like a genuinely great time and meeting new friends, uh, got to know a few of the bands in the Toronto local scene, uh, you know, right before that and was going to a lot of shows and then everything changed and, uh, and I want to say that, uh, you know, that it was okay despite all the change, but that first couple months was pretty rough. Uh, and then my long-term girlfriend and I broke up in May and that was a difficult transition to go through as well. And, you know, just the year kind of kept piling on. That was like, so three months after I'd been diagnosed with another thing that was never really going to change for me, maybe go into remission, but never really going to change kind of like Crohn's relating it back to that experience. Uh, then, you know, moving out of Hamilton, uh, trying to find a new place. And then I ended up moving into the band house. Um, but somewhere along that line, actually right before I was diagnosed was when I came out with that original, uh, Bell S talk, you know, big post on Facebook. And I, I took a lot of comfort in that. Like, you know, I hadn't, obviously I didn't know my diagnosis at that point, so I couldn't reveal a diagnosis, but I, uh, I really, you know, it gave me some accountability and it gave Mm -hmm. me the, the ability to share and more importantly for others to, uh, to see themselves in my experience because I had seen myself in others' experiences, Corey Hirsch and Michael Landsberg and, uh, and these other people that really, not to mention my friends and, you know, people in my community. So I gave them and myself uh, something to relate to and something to kind of grasp onto. And it turned out like there were a few different people that reached out saying like, I had no idea, but you know, I'm also going through this kind of thing. I'm struggling too. And one even told me that they had a, a similar kind of digestive issue to me. And they like, you know, they lived in pain and, uh, 
it was really inspiring for them to see what I had done with this experience. And I hadn't even recovered yet at that point. I thought I had recovered. I didn't even know what my diagnosis was. How could I have possibly recovered? Uh, And diagnosis is, you know, it's not a mandatory thing that must, you know, labels are, it's a difficult conversation. But, uh, you know, for me, as one who was so curious and so cerebral about everything and uh, very research oriented, it really did help uh, to get a diagnosis. Uh, And then I made a choice in September of this past year to reveal that diagnosis online. Uh, And I'd sat on that for a little while. It had been about six months since I was diagnosed. And I decided, you know what, like, I don't care. Like, I'm not worried that it's going to affect my future, even though maybe I should have been like, maybe like, and like for a long time I had been the stigma of, of BPD in particular gets lumped in with some pretty nasty other diagnosis, you know, like people think you're a sociopath and people yeah. think that, uh, and that's or something. that I'm dangerous to myself yeah. and to others. And as a healthcare mm-hmm. professional in the future, you know, what's, what's that going to do? Uh, but I decided that, uh, you know, part of breaking the stigma and part of further understanding myself, but also further connecting with others, I needed to be a little more honest Um, and so I revealed that online on, uh, that was world suicide prevention day. I like occasions. I like, you know, different occasions to pick for, um, to reveal things. Uh, maybe it's cause I saw other people posting on that day and I felt like it was okay for myself to do it, you know, kind of follow along, but also build on what others are saying. Uh, Bell Let's Talk Day has been a big you know, big one of that. I've always enjoyed New Year's as kind of a reset day. Um, like occasions became very important for me. And uh, I was also, last year I did three different sober months, uh, January, March, and September, September for exams. And so during this World Suicide Prevention Day, I was sober and I also crushed my exams and I was very productive. And it's probably the first time I had really been that productive since like the beginning of my university awesome. career. Uh, before, uh, you know, up until, you know, in that time in between I was getting by cause I was smart and functional enough, but not as functional as I wanted to be, not as productive as I wanted to be, not as present as I wanted to be. Um, and then in sometime in November of this past year, uh, I decided that I didn't like what I was doing to myself anymore. And, uh, I took six weeks of kind of just, you know, surveying the land and figuring out, okay, like if, if I don't have drugs and drinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? How am I, and then how am I going to make sure that I don't go back? Uh, and so I've been sober since January 1st, uh, which I mean, 22 days doesn't sound like a lot for some people and, uh, for others it's forever. And for someone who was stoned virtually all the time, other than school and, you know, driving and like some very basic, like, Otherwise you'll get seriously hurt or in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always had like a little voice in the back of my head, keeping myself preservation. But, uh, you know, as someone who spent most of the last seven years stoned and miserable, uh, 22 days is a long time and I don't miss it. Uh, it's, it kind of feels like getting out of a really toxic relationship mm-hmm. where, we romanticize the drugs and we romanticize the party and it's nothing against anybody that, you know, drinks and smokes. Like obviously I was one of those and, uh, I may be one of those again, if, uh, you know, 
depending on how everything goes. Like, I hope not, but I know that things happen. Uh, but for me, I couldn't handle it anymore. I was doing bad things to myself and I, you know, I wanted to, to change. I'll be a real actual healthcare professional in about a year. And I don't want to be, you know, trying to balance that double life of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I like the music and healthcare double life, you know, it's so having the addict other double life, the triple life, if you will, like it's just became so much to deal with mm-hmm. and you wouldn't believe the change in 22 days. Uh, it feels like okay. I'm a complete, completely different person. Cool. Uh, you know, I've been learning piano as, you know, I told you before, I'm not, a, you know, I was not a musician before I learned how to sing and get into a band. I joined a band before I learned how to sing. I had yeah. the energy. I had the, you know, the, the, the thunder as, as Chris, uh, Chris Barrett says, our drummer, you know, I was able to bring the thunder. And so mm-hmm. that's why they brought me on and they taught me how to sing after that. Um, you know, and so we, we really, uh, you know, worked through some mental blocks, the guys and I together. And I, you know, for years I've wanted to learn how to play piano, but I've never had the confidence or the, you know, the patience to do it. And now this last, you know, few weeks I've been doing that. I've been reading, I've been, uh, I've been attending meetings and just, and, you know, Kyle is, uh, as I, Rebecca's partner, Kyle is helping me out a lot with that. Both of them are, um, and through lost. And so it's been, you know, I have a great support system. The guys are super supportive, even though, you know, they live a different lifestyle than me and that's totally fine. I, mm-hmm. I still love them just as much and they love me. And mm-hmm. so to have all of that, uh, it was just time, just really time. And now the interesting thing that that has done for my mental health is it has actually made me feel it more. It hasn't necessarily helped like eradicate it or anything crazy like that. It won't you know, overnight. But what it's done is allowed me to feel my feelings for what they actually are Mm -hmm. and to take, uh, take that inventory of myself honestly and to understand like, oh, these mood swings that I go through, these urges to self-harm, these urges Mm -hmm. to, or, or these, you know, these overwhelming thoughts of being abandoned or, you know, being so attached to things, whether that's material things or people. Um, those are me and they can be worked on, but they're me and they don't deserve to be drowned out. They deserve to be validated and understood. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm still recovering. I have not recovered. I have not, uh, and I, and, you know, mental health is something you need to maintain every day for the rest of your life. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a mission that ever really ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here I am, you know, I ended up, uh, I did an interview for the Rambler podcast actually about a year ago mm-hmm. today too. And I'll probably, uh, and it's funny cause I had done a sober month, like, you know, and I knew it was only going to be a month. So I was speaking soberly at that time as well. Mm-hmm. And it probably sounds pretty similar to where, uh, at least part of it to where I'm at right now. Yeah, but this time I, I, I actually listened to that. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. And so, uh, yeah, everybody, you can go check that out. The Rambler Project. Uh, there's a uh, podcast interview with David here and we kind of they kind of talk about the same subject. So, yeah, I was a guest. Uh, they have their, their podcast is Mind Sweep through the Rambler Project. And they uh, they interview all kinds of great community members and, and somehow decided that I was worth uh, <laughs> worth having on. So I uh, 
they came to my house pre COVID and we recorded and yeah, it was, it was like, you know, I got to tell part of the story and, uh, and every time that I tell my story, there's a little more to tell and there's a little more perspective that I gain. Mm -hmm. Uh, but overall I will tell you that, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not over. I have not recovered, but I am certainly on the best, uh, the best path I've been on in, in years. And, the biggest thing that I can attribute to that is uh, making things happen for myself as opposed mm -hmm. to waiting for the world to change around me. If this pandemic has told me one thing, it is that, you know, the world doesn't care about your plans. The universe doesn't care about your plans. You make plans, God laughs. However, you know, way that you internalize, you know, whatever the bigger th picture is, uh, it doesn't care what you planned for yourself. Mm -hmm. But, uh, just because it doesn't care doesn't mean that you can't make things happen and waiting for the world to change around you won't work. You know, waiting for this pandemic to wait, to go away before figuring my shit out was not going to work. Mm -hmm. Well, first thing I got to say is that I got to give you big props for, uh, for being sober for 22 days. That's amazing. And uh, congrats Thank you. for that. Yeah, of course. Um, did you, uh, I'm curious, did you ever have an inkling of what your diagnosis would be? Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that because mm. basically every person that I went to see in a professional setting, uh, although they were not able to diagnose me, people gave me all kinds of different answers. And honestly, I'm not convinced that I have the full story yet. Mm. Um, you know, BPD is often a thing that has comorbidities. Uh, I wasn't tested when I was a kid, but I did test, you know, I, uh, in the, the gifted, you know, program I was eligible ish, whatever, however they determined that, but I was, you know, put at the top ish percentile of, I don't know what number, but, uh, and what I've learned about that test is that it often is a mental health screener as well. Uh, like it works that way for kids with, you know, really high functioning ADHD or people on the spectrum, or there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, and the first social worker I ended up going to see was convinced it was some kind of ADHD or ADD or one of those. And, uh, and so I started like doing, or, and, and OCD was the other one, but I, I, I think I took that because I had spoken about Corey Hirsch and his story. I think I took that to his, uh, or sorry, to her, um, attention and she kind of ran with it. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, you know, and then later on, um, you know, was it bipolar? Was it depression? Was it anxiety? Yeah. Uh, and truthfully having the diagnosis of BPD, I understand that it's kind of like a little bit of all of it because mm -hmm. BPD is really just about, um, you know, how rapid these swings are. Right. And, um, and, you know, so I go from this depressed low mood, but I'm not, I don't have clinical depression because I'm capable of feeling joy. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, I am capable of feeling immense, almost too much joy to the point of mania. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, Michael Landsberg defines depression as the incapability of feeling, feeling joy. And when he asks people with depression, if that you know, definition makes sense, they all agree. Uh, but I, you know, that was part of what told me that it probably wasn't that, but that I do go through depressive moods and I do, you know, have well, I have in the past had suicidal ideations and I've been lucky that that really hasn't been that much of a concern for me in the last little while. But, um, you know, 
a lot of those symptoms of depression, a lot of those symptoms of anxiety, uh, going through a health, uh, crisis in the you know first half of my life and going through a lot of loss and going through a lot of, uh, you know, different things along my life, uh, and traumas, you know, maybe it's PTSD, but like, you know, they, they so it, it could have been a lot of different things and BPD kind of came out of nowhere for me. Right. Um, even though my intuition maybe, uh, could have, you know, if I was paying a little more attention to it, I think I could have maybe figured that out a little for myself, but, uh, you know, and, and it's funny, there's all these intuitive little things that pop up along the way. Um, one of them being that the Tame Impala album came out the day I was diagnosed and I was listening to it on the, uh, on the bus and the third song and the best song on that album for me was borderline. And I listened to, you know, and, and, and when I looked at my phone trying to, Oh, this is a great song. Like, what is it called? And I looked down, Oh, borderline. Okay, cool. And then I went into my appointment and, uh, after, and when I made that, uh, connection a little later on, maybe later that day, you know, there's certain things, uh, I'm not a really religious guy, but I am a spiritual guy. And there's certain things that really just, uh, you know, point me in that direction that the spiritual path, uh, and is, is kind of at least definitely a large part of the, uh, of the healing path. And I have another story along that line as well that happened, uh, you know, towards the beginning of my conscious healing journey. But I, uh, my grandfather got really sick in June of 2017. He contracted a virus in his heart that ate up his artificial valve and, uh, from, you know, it was like three, four days after he, uh, started showing symptoms, he was like next to death. And, uh, and I ended up flying to, uh, Winnipeg where they lived to, uh, to support my mom through, you know, cause she had gone out a few days earlier to support her through the surgery and to potentially, you know, say goodbye to my grandfather. Mm. And he survived a 14 hour open heart surgery as a 70 I want to say 77 year old man, 78 year old man, uh, no easy feat. The doctor came in and told us it was, you know, although definitely was possible what had just happened. It wasn't a full blown miracle per se. Uh, what had just happened on the table in front of him was low probability. It was a, uh, it was a, you know, it should not have happened and that he wasn't out of the woods yet, but he ended up surviving and getting, getting home. And, uh, and that was, that was quite the thing, but something else that happened during that week is I had a premonition that I had to go visit my other grand, my great grandmother. So on my dad's side, uh, but she was 106 and she was living in a nursing home in Winnipeg. And the day after that, we kind of determined like he wasn't out of the woods necessarily, but that we weren't going to have to spend every single hour of every day at the hospital anymore. I woke up that morning with a premonition that I had to go see her. Um, and I knew that she wasn't doing great and I was going to go see her at some point throughout this visit, but, uh, I convinced my mom and my aunt, Oh, let's, let's go, let's go visit. And, uh, I was kind of told like, I was, you know, Oh, we'll go after the hospital. We'll go after we see Zadie. No, like, let's go now. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, let's go now. And I walked in and, uh, in the elevator, there was a poster about a yellow flower. And if you see this flower on, uh, on anybody's door, it means they're receiving end of life care. And when I saw that poster, something kind of just hit me that that was probably what I was walking into. And sure enough, there was that flower on her door. Mm-hmm. And so I went into, uh, to the room and her two surviving kids, 
my my maternal grand or sorry my paternal grandmother uh, passed away a long time ago. I never met her, but she uh, you know so this was her mother who long outlived her, mm-hmm. which is its own tragedy. But she uh, at 106 was hours days away from death at that point uh, was what her son had said, and I. I just sat there. I didn't really know exactly what to do in that scenario. Um, but all I knew what to do was to comfort, to chat and just kind of reminisce a little bit with, uh, you know, with everybody that was in the room. And then they decided she was a very solitary lady, my grandmother, my great grandmother. And she, uh, they decided they wanted to, you know, that it was too hard for them. They couldn't just sit there and watch her struggle. And, uh, so they left the room and my aunt left the room too. And it was just me and her. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I held her hand. I told her to go, uh, you know, something you see in a, in a movie, but also something I learned from my mom that you're supposed to do when, when they're ready. And we got a call half an hour later that she had passed. Mm-hmm. And I was the last person in a 106 years of life to see her alive other than, you know, nurses and, uh, you know, that, that really impacted me as well. I think when confronted with more mortality, I should say, when confronted with death right in front of you, uh, you know, at such a young age, when my cousin who was 13 had passed and my, my grandmother had died, uh, during that year as well, when I was originally sick and then going through this, like, you know, Oh, my grandfather's really sick and he survived, but he shouldn't have. And now like, yeah, my great grandmother's dead. Like there was just this, like, a lot, um, you know, that kind of impacted me in a way. And that was what really woke me up to this whole spiritual thing and being more present and being more aware of what's going on around me, interacting with the world around me, uh, and listening to myself. And one of the things I learned about BPD is that we are very, very strong, intuitive people, Hmm. uh, but we do not listen to ourselves and that cognitive dissonance and that, um, you know, that struggle between we know what we want. We know how the room is feeling. Like I can walk into a room and tell you the mood of the room. I can walk into a room and, you know, have like this intuitive feeling that something is wrong Mm -hmm. before I even hear anybody speak about it. But the, the real struggle and the real suffering for people like us comes when we don't listen to ourselves and we drown that out with, uh, with substances or with distractions, with sex, with, you know, whatever it is, we all find our own vices to do that. But when we drown it all out and we don't listen to ourselves, we're drifting further and further away from that superpower intuition. And that truthfully is the only thing that can actually help. And uh, you know, I don't know what it was that told me to go to Lost. I don't know what it was that told me to reach out to Tree of Stars a year before that, another amazing organization run by Jessica mm-hmm. Compton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like all of these people, it's funny, like I just find them. I just find them in the right places. Yeah. I don't know what it was that told me that the week, that day, that same like week that my, I'm jumping around a lot. Sorry, but my, uh, that my, with my grandfather and with my great grandmother, that same week I decided I needed to take a year and a half off or a year off of school. I ended up being a year and a half, but, and I went traveling and, you know, I don't know what told me to do that either. Uh, Mm -hmm. other than myself and this divine, not like 
religious divinity necessarily, but this kind of outer, uh, this feeling coming from outside of me, coming from something bigger than myself. And I ended up really falling in love with nature, really falling in love with, you know, the really basic things that we take for granted every day, the stars and the moon and the wind and water and, you know, living near the lakeshore now. Sometimes I'll just drive down there and I'll watch the water move. And uh, in Hamilton, my, one of my favorite spots is Bayfront. And I'll just go sit there and watch the water and feel like I'm part of this, I, like simultaneously, like I am part of that water. And also like I am like so much smaller than any of it. And the stars make me feel like that too. Mm-hmm. And it's all about this grounding, um, you know, that allows us to, to, you know, listen to ourselves. It's when we're grounded that we can listen to ourselves. So to answer your original question, uh, no, I didn't really necessarily think BPD in specific, but it was that, that intuitive feeling that led me to believe that there was something wrong in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the diagnosis, although it caught me off guard looking back, uh, it makes absolute perfect sense. And as one who's educated in, uh, in, you know, healthcare stuff, I'm a little, not surprised and not disappointed with myself because you can't be, but I'm a little uh, surprised that I didn't, you know, kind of catch on to that or at least kind of suggest that to somebody that maybe that was what was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's very difficult to diagnose yourself. I, um, you know, I wouldn't expect you to hit on the head like that. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. Um, well, you know, first, um, thank you so much for being so open about everything. Um, oh, of being, course. Yeah. Being so transparent about, um, you know, your struggles and your history. Um, I think that's fantastic. Um, so the, the subject I kind of wanted to speak on today was the link between mental illness and art. Yes. Um, now, I think that it can kind of be a double edged sword. And I think you mentioned this a little bit more, more for drug abuse. But I think that art and music specifically um, can of course, be therapeutic and can help you and, uh, you know, can can be comforting to those who are suffering. Uh, I think it can also, though, dip into like romanticization. Um, and I'm curious about uh, where your, your experiences with that, about if you found comfort through creating art or, you know, being involved with art, if you've stumbled into the sort of like romanticization of mental illness, um, what, what are your experiences with that? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head there. And I'm sure that a lot of musicians will tell you that exact same thing Mm -hmm. at first. Um, well, when I was a kid, I fell in love with music. It's my first love. Uh, you know, I, 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 when Green Day released American Idiot in 2004, I'm in grade 10. So I'm like, or sorry, grade four. So I'm 10 years old. Um, and I, took that CD home and I spun it to hell and I sang at the top of my lungs. And that was the first time I think that I'd ever really felt alive, uh, was, you know, under, you know, just that, that crazy feeling you get when you stumble upon genius in its own definition. And I ended up going to see them live when I was 11. My dad took me, I don't know how I ended up swinging that, but, uh, that was the night that definitely changed my life for a whole other reason than anything I've spoken about before. And I fell in love with music that day mm-hmm. and, uh, then getting involved with the music, uh, industry a few, you know, a whole bunch of years later through my best friends and then, uh, meeting a whole bunch of other people who, uh, you know, who 
gave me a really cr- good group of like-minded-ish people, or at least uh, people with similar goals, you know, wanting to share, wanting to be vulnerable, wanting to be, you know, performers and, uh, mm-hmm. and characters on stage. Um, and what I came to learn was that although done with great intentions, there certainly is a romanticization, uh, when, especially when that becomes part of your character, when you write sad music about how you're sad and then, you know, you don't want to get happy because, well, what's that going to do to the art? Um, and I've heard from countless people, you know, that being part of the struggle and, Mm -hmm. oh, I, I don't write, uh, like this other people speaking to me, but you know, I don't write happy songs and I don't write well when I'm happy. So I wait until I'm depressed and then I write then. Um, and that's a really, that's a tragedy in and of itself, uh, to me at least. And, you know, for me, when I was really struggling, it helped. I wrote a whole bunch of poems. Uh, I started as a poet writer and became more of a songwriter later on. But, you know, I, uh, I wrote a whole bunch of poems and some of them became songs and I met a whole bunch of people that are now some of my best friends. Uh, in addition to, you know, some great people that I had met before, you know, meeting, uh, people in bands like Pretox and Alex ended up joining Dirty Rick shortly after that. And he's been an awesome addition and he really gets a lot of this mental health stuff too. So, you know, we've had amazing chats about, about all of this and, and, you know, uh, you know, running Violet and, and Onion Face and all these bands, like, you know, just following around getting to, you know, and stuck on planet earth opened for us once on undercover once that, uh, you know, just to try out some new material that ended up being this album. That's so fucking good. The best album that was released last year, in my opinion, mm-hmm. shout out to them. And I, uh, you know, I met all these great people that really, and, you know, not to criticize anybody, but give off this, uh, this really confident aura, especially when they're on stage and especially when they're talking about their music, it is like the only thing that keeps them afloat. It seems like sometimes not to, you know, talk about any one band or person in particular. I don't really know a lot of their stories, but for my story, like when I'm talking about my music and I'm talking about, or music I'm a fan of, uh, it's really easy to yeah, to romanticize stuff. Like we're a party rock band. We sing about drinking. We sing about, you know, being a little too messed up and making bad decisions. And we mm-hmm. sing about, you know, tearing up a sweaty dance floor with, you know, with all these, uh, you know, drunk or otherwise excited, crazy humans. And it's a lot of high energy. And, you know, I never got on stage sober, not even once yeah. before COVID. And so, you know, I'm, uh, and still now, I guess not, but, uh, one day I will. Yeah. And I can count on two hands, the amount of times I'd even practiced, like truly practiced sober. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, like it became part of the character. It became part of that crazy guy you saw on stage. Like part of how I got there was, you know, was getting a little messed up and getting into a place that was a combination of, uh, of some deep seated, you know, sadness and also, this like aggression to battle it. And the thing is I can still channel that, you know, we've been practicing downstairs and I sound way better than I ever did. And I already feel like I'm a better musician now. Um, it's not to say everybody gets that way. Some people never, never really get past the, uh, the partying and the, uh, 
and the self-medicating and, you know, whatever else thing that, uh, that is bringing them down. And that's okay. It's not a judgment here, but looking at some historical figures, uh, you know, and me turning 27 this year, it's not a coincidence that that was a big part of my future thinking as I romanticized the hell out of the 27 club when I was a kid, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Kurt Cobain and, you know, all these guys that, uh, and Jimi Hendrix and all these people that were so influential on me as a, just a music fan, not even a musician at the time, although Jim Morrison in particular, he's my guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, you know, really fell in love with their music, uh, when I was uh, later on in high school. Um, and he was a poet, uh, who, you know, he kind of just lost his way along the way. He wanted to be a poet. Uh, the only way that he was going to be heard was to become a musician. Him and his friends started a band. They became the doors cause uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, named after a William Blake poem, uh, the doors of perception, which Aldous Huxley also wrote a book by that, uh, by that name. And so, you know, there's like a cool kind of lineage of, of thought and Nietzsche was another big inspirational, uh, writer for him. And so you can see, like, you can trace back all these thoughts and it's all this chaos. He thrives off chaos and, you know, oh, let's, uh, let's do something unexpected. Let's do something they're not, they're not looking for. You know, they were the third band to ever play Ed Sullivan and he, uh, you know, they played light my fire and, uh, they wanted him to change the line. And he said, screw that. Like, I'm going to sing it exactly as it was written. And, uh, he didn't care about establishment. He didn't care about rules and that was fine, but he also didn't really particularly care about himself, at least the human inside. Uh, he kind of lost himself in that character. And, uh, and I can, I mean, there's countless other people like that. Um, but the real tragedy of his life is that he never really got to go back to being the poet that he wanted to be. Uh, by the time he started to try doing that when he moved to Paris and retired from the doors or unofficially, at least, Mm -hmm. um, he died before he ever got to, uh, to fully be himself that way. And, uh, he, you know, got to record some poetry on his 27th birthday. And so the band put it to, you know, put it to music and released it as an album that became one of my favorite albums when I was, you know, really struggling. It's called American prayer Mm -hmm. and it's got some awesome deep stuff on it there. And, uh, and I took that to heart because me as a poet getting a little lost along the way and getting a little, you know, and not through any real fault of my own, although I wasn't helping myself. Uh, I take inspiration from, you know, the opposite side of that spectrum. And you look at a guy like Gerard Way, the uh, singer from My Chemical Romance, mm-hmm. you know, they walked away at the height of it all. They were one of the biggest bands in the world. And I remember, uh, you know, when they broke up, I was significantly crushed. They were one of my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, huge inspiration to all these, these, uh, struggling kids all over the place, struggling teens and, uh, emo, if you want to, you know, use the label, but Mm -hmm. I, uh, certainly was a bit of an emo kid when I was in high school and that's, that was, you know, a big significant part of my life. And I still will listen to my chem from time to time. And it's cool to have seen what Gerard Way has done with his life since he became, you know, he went to school to be a comic book writer and uh, illustrator. And so he then started writing comics and now he's got all these comics out and he's got a TV show based on those comics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, he's yeah. living. I'm a big fan yeah. of the uh, Umbrella Academy, the comic yeah, series me, specifically. So. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And, uh, 
you know, I got into it during COVID actually was when I first, you know, started, uh, under, you know, figuring all that out. I was a little late to the party evidently, but, Hmm. uh, I really took inspiration from the fact that, wow, this is, this is a guy who's writing about his experiences and writing about like, like I think I see a lot of him and other musicians in these characters, uh, specifically Vanya, uh, and that like superpower that she has, Mm -hmm. but she can't control it. Uh, and like just all this great metaphor and all the music in the show and, you know, looking at, and, but also the books themselves, like they're just so like, they're so bang on. And, uh, and part of me really wishes that I would have seen whatever Jim Morrison would have, uh, you know, evolved with his poetry. Uh, maybe he would have decided that music was actually the way to go and maybe he would decide it wasn't. And, you know, it's not to say that you should walk away from music and do something else. It's to say that you should do what you want. And for me, uh, that was getting involved with music. That was the thing I needed to, it was kind of the opposite, uh, because I was, you know, studying to be, uh, you know, a doctor at first and now then an osteopath and, you know, all this stuff going on. And, uh, I needed something spiritual and creative to balance that out. And so I found music, but then I needed something to take the edge off of that, and so I found mental health advocacy and uh, mental health circles. And then I needed a way of bridging it all together so that I am not three different humans. Uh, I am one human that, you know, contributes to all three pillars. And that, uh, that is the mission that I'm currently on. That is the grounding mission. That is the, the thing that's going to keep me going long past 27. Uh, and it's, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, if there are other musicians struggling out there, it's not to say that you should stop because sometimes that's the only thing that you're, you know, that's keeping you going. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, at the same time, romanticizing mental illness is really dangerous and, uh, it's playing with fire and playing with chaos and, and extremely uh, widespread in the arts. Oh yeah. Huge, huge. And, uh, but it's also because a lot of artists are those who struggle. So it's not, it's, 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 it's the double-edged sword, as you said, it's, it Mm -hmm. comes from both sides of the spectrum. Um, but you know, it's not to say that you can't sing sad songs and then go to therapy. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's, uh, you know, like there's nothing wrong with that. And you don't have to tell anybody you're in therapy. You don't have to be like me on this podcast uh, or on Facebook or everywhere, you know, sharing. Uh, that's what keeps me accountable, knowing, you know, other people knowing what I'm going through and what I'm trying to do for myself. That's what keeps me accountable. But it doesn't mean that everybody needs to do that. You can be private about it as long as you're safe or you have that one or two people that you really trust uh, and you tell them what you're going through. But if, you know, you just write music about being, you know, depressed or being misunderstood or, you know, wanting to end your life and then you don't do anything about it, like that stuff is going to manifest itself. Yeah. And that's a hard truth. And that's a thing that, you know, a lot of artists need to kind of see in themselves uh, before it's too late because there's plenty and plenty of artists who either drink or drug themselves to death or, uh, or just, you know, in other, find other ways. And again, it's nothing against drinking or drugs in particular. Uh, you know, just sometimes you overdo it and then you can't stop. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, as you said, I think it's a very, you know, as I said, it's a very double-edged sword. And, uh, 
Um, so I, I have a, I have a topic that I kind of wanted to talk about with somebody because, um, when there is, there was something that was going on that, um, piqued my interest in like October. Um, but I was thinking maybe, maybe you'd be interested in this because I don't really know how to feel about it exactly. So I'm, I'm curious about what your opinion is. Um, go ahead. I think, I don't know exactly when this started, but you know, we're all familiar with, um, Kanye West. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. um, over I, I I don't know how long this has been going on, but we know that he's been in a sort of uh, very public manic state for a while. Um, I think we, the majority of people are aware that he's been he is openly he's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And, you know, him mm-hmm. and his family are open about, you know, speaking about that um, and that, you know, there was a lot of. Uh, press around some stuff that he was doing on Twitter and around September or October. Um, There's a lot of stuff, a lot of like kind of public stunts that were going on on Twitter. Um, and then in October, he ended up going on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watch Joe Rogan's podcast or anything. Not really. Nope. I've seen I've seen clips. I know what's up, but I don't really mm-hmm. uh, I don't really keep yeah. up with it. Yeah, I'm not a frequent listener either. Um, but this one I found interesting. Um, so we had him on in October and I, I found it kind of uncomfortable um, because mm-hmm. it's clear that Kanye is not in a perfectly clear mental state. And a lot of the things that he spoke about um, weren't criticized by Joe. While he was on there, a lot yeah. of things talking about how um, he believes that it's sort of his divine right to become president. Um, things about just, you know, you know, sort of sliding into delusions, some of the things he sp- speaks about. And it's a lot of rambling and it's I found it very uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. um, while Kanye is obviously a very extremely talented musician, extremely talented creative in general, in every aspect of art that he's involved in, whether that's, you know, fashion, music, everything. Um, and Joe is right to talk about how creative and how talented Kanye is. Um, I found that he sort of encouraged his thought patterns and really didn't sure. criticize him on anything he said. Um, and I'm curious about what you what your opinion is on that because on one hand um it was uncomfortable and i think that you know when a public figure especially but when when anyone is in a state like that they should be you know someone should try to level them out someone should try to bring them down you know yeah to to ground to earth um but also i i don't believe they should be infantilized you know because he's an adult he can you know do what he wants it's it's his decision ultimately but yeah. um, what do you what do you think about that well i have i have a lot of opinions yeah, uh ahead. so first of all i think it's a it's really difficult because as i said earlier change has to come from within you mm-hmm. so if he doesn't want to change and if he doesn't want to work towards being better um, or being healthier or whatever it is, uh, no amount of going on media and being told, uh, or being coddled or whatever is really going to change him. Mm -hmm. Uh, having said that clearly, like his family and himself had at times been trying really hard. And then also like they're a celebrity family that plays up drama and stuff. So I think it's a really, I think more than anything, it's a, uh, 
it's a product of celebrity culture and how we both idolize and then also, um, you know, kind of make excuses for these people. Right. And when they're actually just really just humans and they're actually really struggling, uh, probably way more than a lot of us give credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the shows that kind of puts a lot of this in perspective for me is BoJack Horseman, which is one of my favorite yes, TV shows. Me too. And it, and it really talks about this, like, you know, Hollywood culture and you grow up, you know, whether you're really young when you get big or you get big in your twenties, you get big later, like at some point, you know, but for especially these younger people that become huge beyond words and have, or, you know, beyond belief and have money beyond anything they can imagine and they can do whatever they want. And they've never been told no since they were like 18 and being, you know, when they started taking over the world, it's really hard to reel that train back in. Yeah. Uh, for his sake, I hope that, uh, you know, that it gets better, but I, I, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to, uh, to say that, uh, that he's doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. you know, because he's sick, but also, uh, it is irresponsible of people like Joe Rogan who clearly are just trying to make money off of him, but everybody's trying to just make money off of him. So, and he's willing to sell himself to make that money. So it's, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to super criticize any one person in all of this. I think it's just a, Mm -hmm. a really a big symptom of the culture that these people work and live in. Uh, and then the other thing is it is the whole misinformation, uh, bubble that we're, you know, or ballooning that we're living through right now with uh, the recent ending of the presidency of Donald Trump and yeah. all of that stuff that has taught us is a really like that there is information overload and that people can say whatever they want. And, and a lot of people will just believe it because it's coming from a certain guy yeah. and Joe Rogan um, in particular and other people like him who just kind of, they say they're playing both sides by letting whoever they want on, but they're actually just like, you know, by not calling out certain lines of thinking that are, or, or by not acknowledging that certain people are sick or by, you know, whatever it is, by kind of just like playing up whatever anybody's saying, like it's doing a lot of harm in addition to whatever good exposing the world to these people, uh, is. And again, it's not really about any one specific interview he's ever done. Uh, that's just kind of the pattern I see with, uh, with him. He'll have, you know, right-wing politicians, he'll have left-wing, you know, celebrities and other people in between. And, 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 you know, it's like, it's, uh, it's all these huge issues that he then try like that, or not he, but like they try and like kind of, uh, present, as, uh, you know, it, it, depending on who he has on, it gets more and more complicated and, and none of the information really gets checked. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people listen to this podcast. Yeah. It's the biggest podcast in the world as mm-hmm. far as I know. And, uh, and so when you have such a huge audience, uh, and we're learning through like, this is how social media now is evolving. And, uh, with, uh, some of the legislature that's going through in the States right now, it's very possible that some of these American born social media companies are going to become a lot more responsible for what's going on on their feeds. And some people think that that's an infringement of an, on, you know, free speech, but free speech doesn't mean free of consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think that if people were held more accountable in general for what they say online and what they say, yeah. um, you know, in public forum, not necessarily censored, but, you know, just questioned, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Hey, like, you know, you said that on your podcast, uh, when in fact this is what is, 
you know, widely believed to be true. And here are my sources for this. Like, why did you allow that misinformation to spread? I think if some people, and this is kind of getting away from Kanye, because it's not so much misinformation as just, you know, uh, yeah, delusions and allowing him to kind of have a platform to, uh, to continue to grow that dangerous character, Mm -hmm. even though he's not, maybe he's not consciously aware that he's growing it. Maybe he is. We are not in his head, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. It might just all be an act. Uh, and that's, you know, that's not something that any one of us is going to know. And it's not an accusation, you know, mental health is very real as I have been talking about for about an hour now. (laughs) It's, uh, you know, it's not to say that, oh, he's a celebrity has all this money. How could he possibly be sad? No, that's not what I'm saying. But, uh, I think that the media and the way that we do interviews now, uh, you know, you used to have to go through a newspaper or, um, you know, a specific, like you'd have to go through journals to have things published. And now anybody with a blog can kind of just say whatever they want. And, <laughs> Is that uh, a dig? you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I talk about whatever I want to, it's, uh-huh. it's really just a changing landscape yeah. and, uh, what it is more than a dig is kind of just a, uh, a reminder to anybody out there, any of you podcasters, any of you bloggers mm-hmm. and you, mm-hmm. that you are responsible for what uh, gets said on your platform. Yeah. And that is a good thing. Yeah. That is a very good thing mm-hmm. because if we're a little more responsible for what, uh, yeah, for what information is being put out there, then uh, I think we'll see a little less of this. Uh, I don't know. We're just very vulnerable people and mm-hmm. uh, we'll believe whatever people will tell us and whatever sounds sexy and whatever sounds, mm-hmm. you know, coming from certain celebrities that we think we trust. Yeah. Uh, but I think these people need to be held into account. Mm-hmm. One, um, one specific toxic thing that really bothered me about that podcast um, was so Kanye was publicly, uh, you know, I, again, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he, um, he, before he entered this sort of manic state that he was going through, um, he publicly went off of his medication. He was on mm-hmm. bipolar medication for a long yes. time and then he publicly went off of it and, you know, was, uh, he's, he's open about that. And that's something they mm-hmm. discussed on the podcast. And, um, Joe, went to talk about how uncomfortable he was with the idea of being medicated and that he, um, because so the reason why Kanye said that he went off it was because it stifled his creativity. And Joe basically agreed with him and said that he doesn't believe in medication and thinks that there's some sort of, you know, agenda behind putting people, putting creative minds, putting, yeah. you know, uh, creative thinking minds on medication. And that, oh my God, bothered me. Because obviously, obviously medication is not the right thing for everybody. You know, we're all different. We all respond differently to different forms of therapy and things like that. So medication is not mm-hmm. a one, one size fits all, right? But for some people, it yeah. changes their lives completely for the better. For some people, it just oh, like, it works, you know, amazingly. And the idea that, you know, the, the, the rhetoric that he's spreading, that medication is, you know, for mental illness is, uh, is just going to destroy you from the inside out. And that it's, you know, to stifle your, your creativity and your free thinking is, is fucking dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not currently on any, uh, mental health or mental illness medications. Mm -hmm. I've never been prescribed them, which Mm -hmm. is why I'm not on them. If I was prescribed them, I would take them. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that that is really, yeah, that's really dangerous, Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of, and I mean, there's a big anti-medicine movement in general, anti-vaccines, anti this, you know, 
masks and stuff and, and, uh, and medication and big pharma and all of that. And as a, you know, as one in the healthcare industry as well, I, I hate it because, uh, it's very, it's very few scientists that are actually contributing to that conversation. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of other people, a lot of people with agendas, a lot of businesses, a lot of, um, you know, just misinformed people that, uh, that are spreading, you know, again, it's, it's not to say that it's for everybody. And there are certainly people that I've seen that have changed for the worse because of being prescribed the wrong medications, uh, especially and like certain, like, you know, there are exceptions, but overall, um, you know, if you want a second opinion, go to a different doctor. Mm-hmm. If you don't think that's the meds you want to be on or if something is going wrong, talk to them about it mm-hmm. or talk to a different doctor. Uh, and I understand that the system doesn't really care about us sometimes. And we, uh, you know, it's really hard to get re, uh, get appointments. Sometimes it's really hard to, uh, to advocate for yourself, especially when part of this whole mental illness thing is that your brain is actively looking for ways to play tricks on you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that spreading that kind of uh, message is really dangerous because you're taking people that have otherwise changed their lives for the better uh, or, and, you know, or maybe are still dealing with uh, some, you know, issue like mental illness doesn't just get wiped out as Michael Landsberg would say, uh, you're, you know, I take, or he takes, um, medication for depression so that I don't experience any of those one or two out of 10 days, but it also doesn't let me experience any of those 10 or nine out of 10 days. Uh, but I will trade the lack of nine or tens to not ever experience the ones or twos. Mm -hmm. And so like it, it, I understand that there is a certain, like you, it's, it's, you know, you can feel stifled. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't experienced it personally, unfortunately, uh, to be able to relate to this. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, from reading and from talking to people, uh, most people that I know that are taking medications will say that uh, their life has become a lot better yeah. for having done it, if not for any other reason than just feeling a little more organized and a little more capable to be able to do the things they need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was self-medicating for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at first it was partying at first it was, you know, just kind of doing whatever, but the last like couple years of my use, I was certainly self-medicating and certainly, um, you know, using it for that specific purpose of, uh, trying to overcome a thing that was not going to be overcome by, by pot. And that's why like, you know, some certain medications, are not going to work for certain illnesses. Like it's, it's the same concept. Uh, you know, you could, t- you could be taking on SSRIs when what you need is, uh, you know, bipolar meds, what you need is something, you know, anti-anxiety meds. Like there are different classifications of these medications mm-hmm. and it's not to say like, just because one doesn't work for you doesn't mean they're all not going to work for you. Uh, I think that two celebrities gallivanting over how, uh, they're, you know, their beliefs in these things. And, you know, the other thing is they have all the money that they could ever want. Mm-hmm. So even if they didn't want to take meds, they have a million other options. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of people in the States, especially because healthcare is so expensive, they do not have those options. Mm-hmm. So they'll get off the meds and then they won't have like, and then what? Yeah. Um, and again, it's not to say that he should have or should not have gone off his medication and been public about it. That's, that is for him to talk yeah. about. He can talk about whatever he yeah, wants. Um, but to, but for, 
you know, the, the interviewer in that case to not, you know, at least have that conversation Mm -hmm. in a way that's a little more balanced. Um, it's irresponsible for all of the hard work that so many people are putting in Mm -hmm. to overcome themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand that from Joe Rogan's point of view, um, I know that he's, he's mentioned that he, I think in that podcast as well, that he's suffered from anxiety and that, uh, the way that he, um, deals with that is through, um, like exercise, uh, dietary changes. And also, uh, if you know Joe Rogan, you know that he loves psychedelics and that's something that's worked for him. Um, and so, and that's fantastic. That's worked for him. But again, nothing is a one size fits all. And you cannot just uh, shove that onto every other person that has a disorder. You know, and for sure. And as someone who has liked psychedelics, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, myself, like I definitely see the benefits in low dose, um, you know, controlled use of them. Mm -hmm. There's more and more research going into it. My cousin is a, uh, is a psychiatrist at Yale Mm, and he studies psychedelics for the use in, you know, psychiatric patients. Like there is, there is good evidence that this stuff in low dose controlled ways can benefit many, many people. Um, you know, it's not about the substance itself. What it becomes about at that point is education Mm -hmm. to not take it too far. I never took it in the way that was supposed to, you know, by doctor standards, be therapeutic. I always overdid it. I'm lucky in myself that I never super overdid it. And that I, um, you know, I had that sense of self-preservation, but I also learned some things on it. So I don't think it was a you know total, like it definitely helped certain things for me. I can see where the appeal and like pot helped certain things for me too, especially physical pain mm-hmm. with, uh, with, uh, with Crohn's, like a lot of people with Crohn's smoke and have, you know, a lot of their chronic pain symptoms managed by it. And if you can't, if you can be, you know, if you treat it like drinking a beer at night, you know, one with dinner, you know, you have a little bit before bed and you take, you know, CBD capsules throughout the day. Mm-hmm. That is a healthy relationship to have with it, yeah. but I wasn't doing that. So it's important to understand that even though some people are advocating for the use of controlled substances as medication, and although part of that is true, there is a lot of education that has to come mm-hmm. uh, while you are doing that. Otherwise, you're just having fun. And if what you're doing, if your goal is to just have fun, then great. Like all the power to you. I'm not criticizing people for their use. Uh, that is a decision between them and themselves. Uh, and I don't want to be one of those holier than thou sober guys. That's never, that's never what I want to be, you know, yeah. looking down on people. Cause I mean, I, I've been sober for 22 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a God. Mm -hmm. I'm not a, you know, trying to tell people that I'm better than them. Mm -hmm. I hope that nobody, nobody sees it that way. I am just speaking from my experience and I will say that at times a lot, all that stuff helped me. And then it eventually it, it was, you know, it got too far, Mm -hmm. but, um, and, but to also touch on what else he was saying, like, sure, exercise definitely helps. Yeah. Food definitely helps. How it's all connected. Like we are we are closed systems, uh, the body. We are, you know, everything's connected. Everything that we do is, uh, you know, affects some organ system and some uh, neurological pathway and some, you know, habits and skills and 
thoughts and all of it, like it's everything affects it. So any little thing that you can do can help, but I don't think that mental illness can be solved alone by diet exercise and talking about it. Like there are some people that need more than that. And those people should be encouraged that it's okay Mm -hmm. to take meds Mm -hmm. and that the stigma is not bigger than themselves and that they, you know, have support and anybody that, you know, is going to act in the, against the best interests of that are not people that they need in their lives anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Uh, if I may just, uh, you know, plug a little bit, uh, with my band, I just want to mention that, uh, you know, it's been really difficult for me not being able to play live shows Mm -hmm. and not being able to, uh, cause that, that is a thing that, it better than any drug on the planet standing on stage and having that, uh, you know, having people scream lyrics back at you, lyrics that you wrote, um, or, or just cheering, you know, it's, and having a great time and watching them dance. I get off on that and I really, really miss it. It's been really difficult for my mental health to, uh, you know, it's been since March 5th when we played at the horseshoe, we played a little outdoor show in Hamilton in November, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this past November, but otherwise, It's been really difficult, but I want to, you know, put out there that the worst is almost over with all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's still going to be a little bit, you know, there's still time uh, for us to isolate and to work on ourselves and work on our relationships with our people that are closest to us. Mm -hmm. But uh, God damn, there will one day be another show and then there will be a lot of shows and I can't wait to see all of you out there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if, uh, you know, if you want to check out our music, some bluesy, dancey rock and roll and have some, you know, dance party with yourself and, uh, or your friends at your, at, you know, in your house, if you live with your friends or your family, if you live with your family, um, you know, I, I find that a dance party is one of the best little therapeutic things that I can do for myself, combining exercise and my music love and all of that. Uh, so if you want to, you know, dance to us and have some fun, uh, you can check us out on Spotify. You can check us out on Apple music, uh, on YouTube. We released our lyric video for 1968, uh, which is a song that, uh, started as one of my poems and only a little bit of my original poem remains in it, but, you know, kind of like doomsday in that same sense. Um, but there, you know, this is music that we are extremely proud of and that we are happy to share with you and we wish we could share more with you. Uh, we were, you know, going to record some more, but, uh, obviously things have changed, uh, with the world around us, but we will be back. We will be better than we ever have been. And so will you and the crowds eventually once people are, you know, once the vaccine is widely available and once we are all, uh, you know, once, once this thing's been eradicated and we're able to, you know, go hug our friends and, and have sweaty dance parties again, we will be back for the roaring 2020s. Hell yeah. So again, you can find David at Howlin, so no G, Howlin Frog on Instagram. Uh, you can also find him on Facebook at David Kaufman. You can find his band Dirty Rick at Dirty Rick Music on Instagram. You can also check out their website, dirtyrick.com. And again, they're on all streaming services. And if you check out their YouTube, they just released a new lyric video for 1968, their latest single. So um, thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank you. And one... One last thing, if I may, um, if, if you feel the need 
and you feel uh, compelled to talk to me about any of this stuff that you've heard today, you can reach out. Uh, I'm, I'm an open book. You can reach out to, on my personals. You can reach out to the Dirty Rick stuff. Uh, I'm, you know, they'll know it's for me and I'm the one that reads it anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, if there's anything I can do to help any of you out there, uh, you know, I was saved by somebody who posted stuff on social media. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to pay it forward here. Well, you know, you have a you have an incredible story. Um, you know, I love talking to you about this stuff. Um, and thank you so much for coming on here. And yeah, everybody go check out Dirty Rick. Go check out David. And um, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right. See you later. Stay safe out there. You too.